No matter how strong our faith is, we all have moments when we come to the end of ourselves. The problem is, if we're honest, we aren't sure if God can meet us in that place. Insecurity, doubt, rejection, and pain make us feel isolated and alone. But if we offer our desperation to God in prayer, we find Him eager to listen, to forgive, to heal, to step in, and help. Well, since I last preached here, something significant has happened in my life. I got a new pair of J's, uh, so there's that. Uh, so pretty excited about that. These were a gift from Pastor Chuck and some of our other pastors here on staff. They told me I had to wear them if I got elected as president of the Southern Baptist Convention to indicate that it was a new day. And I promise you that the first thought I had when they announced that I had won the election was, oh no, I've got to wear these on stage when they actually made me president of the SBC. Um, but that is the other big thing that's happened in my life. I got um, elected to serve as president of the SBC, which is a one-year thing, uh, renewable for a second year. So, Thank you. Thank you, mom, back there for starting that round of applause. A um, couple of things that uh, I do want to reiterate to you there with that is that being elected into that position does not change my relationship here at the Summit Church at all. I will continue to serve uh, in my full capacities as your pastor, which after my family is my first and most important ministry assignment by a long shot. And so this church will always come uh, first in my ministry commitments. We even structured my travel schedule in advance uh, so that uh, in the the coming year, um, I won't, will not miss, Lord willing, any more weekends that I have in previous years. Being SBC president may lead to, to a lot more alliteration in my sermons and more potlucks and dinners on the ground here at the Summit Church, but uh, that's about the only difference that you should notice. You know, I told you months ago that the reason that our elders and my, my wife and, and I um, felt led of God to even be open to this when we were approached was um, really the implications that we thought it might have for uh, the Great Commission, if there is a code that I have tried to live by for the last several years of ministry, um, and just in my life in general, I'd encourage you to live by it too, um, is that really everything in my life has to be done with a view to how it helps the forward progress of the gospel and the nations. And then secondly, that I do whatever I, I believe the Holy Spirit is telling me to do. And in this case, both of those things kind of lined up with this. And so we felt like we should at least make ourselves available. Uh, I've told you that, uh, that around 240 of our members here at the Summit Church live on um, a church planting team overseas and around a hundred of our members every year um, uproot from this church to go live on one of our domestic church planting teams. And both of those um, uh, international and domestic church planting initiatives are, most of them are done in partnership with Southern Baptist initiatives. So I told you it doesn't make any sense for us to commission our people to go and uh, serve on these things if we're not committed as a church to doing what we need to do to make for good sending and support structures. Uh, I think I told you William Carey's statement that, you know, when he left, he was the father of the modern missions movement. When he went to uh, go serve in India two or 300 years ago, he told the English Baptists, he said, listen, I'm willing to dangle by the end of the rope over there in India if you're willing to commit to holding securely to the other end. And so really 
really, this is a part of doing that. Uh, what I've been praying now for the next uh, couple of years that I'm doing this, I'd love for you to pray with me. This is not what I'm preaching about today, but if you want to jot this down and just pray this with me, the first is Psalm 67, where the psalmist says, God, be merciful to us and bless us, cause your face to shine upon us so that your way might be known in all the earth and your salvation among all nations. We know that when God blesses a people, he does so for the purposes of the spread of the gospel in the nations of the earth. And I'm praying that that would be what is fulfilled here. The other one that I'm praying for me and my family, I would love for you to pray is Proverbs 10, 22. Proverbs 10, 22, where Solomon says, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Um, as God has given us richness of opportunity and richness of influence, um, I'm asking God that there be no sorrow in my relationship with him. There be no sorrow in my relationship with my family, my marriage, or in um, our experience here as a church as a result of this. And so if you would pray those with me, I'd be grateful. In fact, if you are willing to pray those with me, why don't we just at all campuses, if you would just say amen. 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 All right. Psalm 25, you got your Bibles. Let's go ahead and dive in this weekend. Psalm 25. We are in a series called Help in which we consider prayers that I would say almost all of us have prayed at some point in our lives. Uh, whether you are a very spiritually mature person or whether you're a brand new Christian or even if you don't think you're that religious at all, if you believe in God at all, I would say that these four prayers have come out of your mouth at some point in your life. Um, week number one, Pastor Derek preached on how long, oh Lord, how long am I going to remain in pain? How long is injustice going to prevail? And the answer that Pastor Derek showed us from the scriptures was not long at all. And in the meantime, we should shift our focus from our situation to our Savior. Week number two, Pastor Will preached on, where are you, God? I feel all alone. And the answer he showed, at, showed us was that through Christ, we are never actually alone. And we know that if Jesus was faithful to us in his darkest hour, that he will also to be faithful to us in our darkest hour as well. Week number three, Pastor Curtis preached on God, do you not even care? And the answer he showed us was, yes, he does care. In fact, when we trust in his love and commit ourselves to it, we will see him do some amazing things, even in the darkest and most confusing chapters of our lives. I will say, having listened to these three messages while I was out um, away, uh, I will tell you it's been some of the best three weeks of preaching we have ever had at this church. Uh, one of the things that we say here is that we are committed to raising up other leaders at the church, so what a joy it was to see um, some of these leaders that are emerging at our church as they preach to the whole church the last several weekends, and so I'm very grateful to have that level of quality in Bible teaching when I am out of the pulpit, okay? Um, thank you. And thank you, Pastor Curtis, for beginning that round of applause back there in the back there. All right. Well, this weekend, I want us to consider the prayer, God, which way is the right way for me to go? Which way is the right way for me to go? I, again, I think all of us at some point have looked up toward God and said, God, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm confused. Which one's the right decision? What school should I go to? Should I go to grad school or not? Which job should I take? Should I go out with him? Should I break up with her? Um, where's the right place for us to live? Maybe it's been a more sobering question for you, like, God, is it right for me to separate from my husband during this time? Or God, how do I handle this relational difficulty? All of us have been in a time where we didn't know what to do. And so we learned to God and said, God, give me a sign. God, show me, show me which way I'm supposed to go right? Haven't you been? In fact, let's just kind of calibrate this morning uh, at all of our campuses. If you have, if you were in a season right now, 
where you are praying that prayer. God, I just need wisdom to know what to choose. Just put your hand up at all of our campuses. See there, and we're dealing with two-thirds of the people that are right now in that kind of situation. Um, This is probably one of the main causes of stress in our lives, is trying to figure this out. Um, I brought, by the way, a number of props today, uh, because remember my son, eight-year-old son, told me that I get boring when I don't preach with props, so uh, I brought a few props. Um, Anybody remember these books right here? Um, choose your own adventure novels. Anybody read these when they were a kid? I loved these things when I was a kid. Uh, basically, if you're not familiar, you're, you're, you're reading and you come to a point where you got to make a choice. It'll say something like, um, you're being chased by a flock of rabid wolverines and um, a little old lady invites you into her house for safety. Do you go in or do you stay out? If you choose to go in, turn to page 210. If you stay out, turn to page 130. And I'd be like, well, I mean, I don't have any other alternatives. I guess I'll go in. And then you go, you turn to page 210 and it's like, oh, too bad. A little old lady turned out to be a witch and she puts you in her pot and boils you in her stew and eats you for dinner, the end. And, uh, and so you, you have all these choices to make. And that's how people perceive the will of God is they're like, you're like, well, I got two choices here and one of them is gonna lead me to prosperity and awesomeness and the other's gonna lead me to doom and destruction. How do you figure out which way to go? Right? I remember when I, I think it was eight or nine years old, I started to figure out that the last page of the book was always like the best ending. And so I'd start there and see if I could reverse engineer my way back to the beginning and figure out what the right set of choices were. And so you're like, well, how do you do that in life? How do you get to a point where you figure out where that peace and prosperity is and then reverse engineer your life? And, and how do you know when God's actually speaking to you? What does that feel like? Is it like some warm kind of tingly feeling you get when you think about the right choice? Or is it like some weird set of you know, circumstances that you just know has to be God? A uh, pastor friend of mine was telling me about a guy in his church who made a major life decision, major life decision. And he said what this guy said was his criteria for choosing was when he drove home, he was thinking about one of the choices. And when he pulled in his driveway, seven doves took off from his yard. And he was like, doves are Jesus's favorite animal because that's what anointed him with the Holy Spirit. And seven is the number of completion. That meant the decision was done and I was totally at peace. And my friend was like, well, first in North Carolina, they're probably pigeons, not doves. Uh, Second of all, I'm just not sure I would make a major life decision based on what could just be a coincidence. Now, don't sit there and shake your head at me like, oh, we're so spiritual, we never think. You do that kind of thing, don't you? You've got some sort of like, what is that really God speaking to me? We kind of want, prop number two, We kind of want God to be, remember this? You remember this thing? We want God to be our magic eight ball. We're like, God, how do I ask you a question? And you just tell me like, you know, which way to go. Um, uh, God, will I preach longer than an hour today since it's my first week back? Up to you, Uh, up to you. So uh, uh, Lord, are cats evil? All right, all right. No doubt about it, no doubt about it is Nicolas Cage, the greatest actor of our generation. You know, some things you don't even need any ball to <laughs> determine, they're just self-evident, but that's what we want. We want God. You wanna know like, what's the criteria for God is my magic eight ball? How do I know exactly what he wants me to do in a certain situation? Well, this weekend, I wanna acquaint you with a new favorite Psalm of mine. And it's become a favorite, I think, because of um, where I'm at in my life, uh, but it is a promise of guidance. And it shows you the way that God guides his people. Now, let me give you one word of historical perspective before we totally dive in here, okay? Historical perspective. Up until about 50 years ago, there was almost no talk in the church at all about discerning or knowing the will of God. 
at least in terms of personal decision-making. If you go back to the sermons of the early church or the sermons that were preached during the Reformation, you're not going to find a single one on ascertaining the will of God. Today, by contrast, we are obsessed by it. It's always the most popular seminar at any conference you go to. It is the number one question I get asked whenever there is an open Q&A, especially if there are college students in the audience. And I think the relative absence of it and the sudden obsession of it in our day can by itself teach us something important. You see, previous generations did not worry as much about discerning the will of God, but in our culture, we are all about individualism, and we're all about self-actualization, and we're all about security, and so the will of God becomes a way for us to guarantee that we get all those things. That's why many of us have turned the will of God into an idol, and that we seek to know the will of God more than we seek to know God himself. We think finding the will of God is going to remove all uncertainty from our life and help us achieve all of our dreams and live our best life now. Now, the Bible does talk about God's guidance in our lives. I'm going to show you that here in a minute. But it puts the emphasis in different places. You're going to see the Bible put more emphasis on knowing and trusting God and becoming the kind of person God wants you to be, a whole lot more emphasis there than it does in learning to detect some mystical guidance in a particular decision. In fact, here's your big idea for the day from this psalm, if you want to just write it down from the beginning. The big idea in this psalm is the question, the question is not how God guides, the question you should be asking is whom God guides. Not how God guides, but whom God guides. Guidance is not something God gives to you as much as it is something he does for you. The question is, are you the kind of person that God guides? Psalm 25, this is a Psalm of David in which he is both asking God for guidance and rejoicing that he has it. Let's start in verses 12 and 13, right in the middle of the Psalm. Who is this person, David says? Who is this person who fears the Lord? He, God, will show him the way that he should choose. He will live a good life and his descendants will inherit the land. What you should notice there is that the guidance that David is trusting God for in this psalm trust, uh, um, touches a lot of different things. In this psalm, he's going to make allusions to relationships and healthy relationships and career choices, even parenting decisions. See where it says, my descendants in the land, he's talking about being a wise parent. In verse 15, David trusts God to keep him from disaster, keep my foot from the net. Verse 17, he trusts God to guide him through the things that are causing him stress in his life. So if your thought, by the way, this morning is that God really only cares about the spiritual stuff in your life and all the other stuff is just, you know, whatever, you need to put that thought away. You can see from this psalm that David is trusting God's guidance over every square inch in his life, from his relationships to his career to his parenting and everything in between. David sums up his hope at the beginning and the end of this psalm. At the beginning, verse 2, my God, I trust in you. Don't let me be disgraced. In any decision I make, don't let me be disgraced. Verse 20, guard me and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame. Again, in any area of my life, don't let me be put to shame because I'm taking refuge in you. Now, before we get into describing the kind of person that God guides, let me, let me, let me point out a couple of really precious promises in this psalm that David seems to cling to. First, in verse 2, David declares, others cannot mess up God's will for me. Other people can't mess up God's will for me. You'll notice all throughout this psalm, David keeps referring to his enemies. Verse 2, don't let my enemies gloat over me. Verse 19, consider my enemies. They are numerous. There's a lot of them and they hate me violently. I got enemies who they hate me and they have a terrible plan for my life. 
Some of you look back at your life and you see how there have been people in your life who tried to mess you up. Maybe they didn't mean to, or maybe they did it intentionally, but you had a father who messed you up, or a mother, or a brother, or an ex-spouse, or a business partner, or a, or a boss, former boss, current boss. Well, David evidently had a lot of those people also. And what David declares in this psalm, he says, God, I trust that your promises and your guidance is greater and more powerful than any of my enemy's evil intentions against me. It's hard here for me not to think about Joseph in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. Um, Joseph, if you're not familiar with, with the Bible, um, yeah, just about everybody's heard some version of, of this story. But you know, here's Joseph, a guy who's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's, he's, he's wronged at their hands. After he's sold into slavery, he experiences a litany of racial discrimination and unjust accusation and accusations of sexual assault and things that just keep him in a lot of suffering for a long time. But when Joseph gets to the end of his life, he's in a position where he's able to bring a great act of goodness and salvation to Israel. And he looks into the face of those brothers who had betrayed him all those years before. And he makes that famous statement. He's like, you meant it for evil. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that was the basis, by the way, that he was able to, to be able to forgive his brothers. Because he knew that even though they had wronged him, that God had overwritten their wrong for good in his life. Let me just tell you that if you are struggling with an area of bitterness towards somebody, if there's somebody in your past that you just can't forgive, I guarantee you that if you trace it down to its, its, its root, you will find that at its root, you don't actually believe, or at least you haven't reconciled, that even though they meant it for evil, God could still use it for good in your life. That doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that they didn't do you wrong. And it doesn't mean that you didn't hurt. And it doesn't mean that they're just getting off scot-free. But what it means is that God's grace is so amazing that he can take even the wrongs of others and turn it for good, and that's his promise. In fact, that's my homework assignment for you this week. I'm serious about this. You go home and you take a three-by-five card, and you write on that three-by-five card that name of that person that, that, that hurts you and that you think messed you up. And then underneath their name, you write the phrase, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And for seven days, you look at that and you pray that back to God. And you tell me if seven days from now, you don't come in here and have a different attitude toward that person and toward that chapter of your life. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And David says, not even my enemies can mess up your plan for me. Promise number two, maybe even better, my own past mistakes can't permanently disqualify me from God's will either. At least twice in this psalm, David asked God for forgiveness for past mistakes. One of them is here in verse 11. Lord, for the sake of your name, forgive my iniquity because it is immense. In other words, not little iniquity, not JV iniquity, like big league iniquity, varsity iniquity. And yet even in the midst of immense iniquity in his part, he still prays for God's guidance and he still trusts God for his perfect plan for his life. Now, here's what you need to take away from that. David believes God's promises are greater even then his own mistakes. Now, some of you are like, well, wait, okay, wait a minute. I, I get that it seems fair that God would protect me from the harm that others want for me, but my own mistakes, it seems like God may be like, you know what, you made that bed, you're gonna have to sleep in it. You messed your life up, that's just something that, that's on you. And it is true that sins and mistakes can bring consequences into your life, and those consequences can be painful, and sometimes they're, they're irreversible in this life. Yet what David is saying is even those don't disqualify you from God's ultimate plan for your life. 
I go back to Genesis again. Uh, uh, Jacob, uh, by the way, everything you really need to know about God is in the book of Genesis. Hey, you, everything after that is just kind of a footnote and commentary on the book of Genesis. So learn the book of Genesis and you'll be fine. Um, in the book of Genesis, Jacob is another guy who sins a lot. I mean, varsity level immense sinner. And some of those sins bring really painful consequences, like he betrays his brother and lies to his brother. And so he is estranged from his family and has to flee and live in a foreign land. Yet, while he's in that foreign land, he meets the love of his life. And from the relationships in that foreign land, right, from that marriage, ultimately comes the line of the Messiah. Now, here's your dilemma. He got into those relationships because of sinful choices he had made. Was the Messiah plan B? Was the Messiah an oops, I guess we'll give the world Jesus? Of course not. What does that mean that Jacob didn't actually sin? Well, no, he obviously did, and he suffered because of the consequences of it, but it just shows you in the unbelievable mysteries of God's grace that he takes even our sinful decisions and he can write, he can stamp his plan on them, and he can say, your, even your sin is not enough to disqualify you from my ultimate plan for your life if you repent. Um, I always think here, and I got my wife's permission to tell this story, um, of uh, her, um, how, how, you know, eventually the road that lead, led to her and I meeting. Um, she uh, was a high school senior, and uh, she lived in Virginia, and so she'd been accepted at William & Mary and the University of Virginia. And so she was trying to figure out which way to go, and she was waffling. Well, she said that her uh, relationship with her parents uh, during this chapter of her life was n- not awesome. And uh, she said that her and her dad had gotten in an argument. And, and, and she said, so my dad was a graduate of Virginia Tech. And she said, you know, I don't know how much y'all know, being North Carolinians, about those things up there. But we have relationships like that down here that if you like Virginia Tech, you can't like UVA. And if you like UVA, you can't like Virginia Tech. If you love one, you got to hate the other. That's somewhere in the Bible. But um, so, so she was like, you know, they were just like, not UVA. And dad was like, not UVA. And so she said, but to spite him, because of our argument, I turned in the letter for UVA, right? Which is not a godly motivation for why you should go to school there, right? It's clearly a sinful motivation um, in you know, almost an act of rebellion against her parents. Well, you know, from her relationships at UVA, ultimately she meets the man of her dreams, <laughs> Jesus, and also me while I was there. And, uh, <laughs> and now, you know, she's here and we have four kids. Does that mean that's all plan B? Am I, am I plan B for her life? Don't answer that. But am I like God's second best? No. It's that God takes even our sinful choices and somehow in the beauty of his grace, he can still work his plan for our life. That's why David exalts in verse 10, all the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth. All the, now how many of the Lord's ways? The, the ones that are done in response to the good things that I've done? No, all of them. There is not a single thing that God does with me that is not done in faithful love and truth. And even when I give up on him, he hadn't given up on me. And goodness and mercy, keep following me. Now let me apply this one other way before we move on. I've met people who were born out of sinful circumstances. They were born because of an affair. Or maybe your parents had you out of, of wedlock and you've wondered like, am I a mistake? In fact, maybe you've been told that throughout your life. Maybe your parents told you, you are a mistake. No friend, you are not. Maybe the circumstances by which you came into the world were sinful and that's on your parents, but you were not a mistake. You wanna know how I know that? Jesus himself came into the world through a series of sinful choices by others and he definitely ain't a mistake. And if he ain't a mistake, then you're not either, all right? So as you can see, there are some incredible promises David is clinging to here. So the question then becomes, how, what, 
how do I experience the guidance of God? What do I got to do to experience the guidance? Remember, the question is not how God guides as much as it is whom God guides. So that's our question. Here's number one. I'm going to give you four characteristics of the person that receives the guidance of God. Number one, those trained in the ways of God. Those trained in the ways of God. Verse four, make your ways known to me, David says. Lord, teach me your paths. When David says, teach me your paths, he is talking about an act of inward, excuse me, about an inward familiarity with the ways of God that trains him almost instinctively in how to act in various situations. Think of it the way that an athlete is trained. You can't, a coach cannot train an athlete to respond in every situation because the defense is always changing. It's always unique to that moment. But what a coach can do is train the athlete in the instincts, the skills to know how to read a situation, and then to equip them with the skills so they can respond in the right situation when that situation is upon them. Uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite Michael Jordan interviews after he had done some crazy, you know, split the defense, tongue out, move, you know, acrobatic dunk or whatever. And uh, the uh, interviewer after the game says, you know, uh, you know Michael, are you, um, when, you, when you drive into the lane, do you know what you're going to do before you start driving? And Jordan's famous response was, no, I just jump and decide in the air. By the way, I feel so cool telling this story right now with these shoes on. Um, so uh, he's not just jumping to side, instinct, right? I just jump and my instincts take over and out comes this beautiful work of art basketball move. That's because he has been trained in the ways. He's become familiar with them. So he executes in the moment, even without his coach telling him, this is what you should be doing. That's what David is talking about. I want to be trained in that way. The New Testament way of talking about that is this, Hebrews 5. Anybody who lives on milk talking about a Christian who doesn't know much about God's word. He lives on milk, being still an infant. is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. In other words, you got to have somebody holding your hand telling you what to do in every situation because you're still a baby and you don't understand much. However, go verse 14, solid food is for the mature who by, watch, constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. When he says good from evil there, he's talking about things outside of what scripture tells us. Why? How do I know that? Because if scripture tells you, you don't need to be trained to distinguish good from evil. It's written right on the page. He's meaning in the moment you have this instinct to determine good from evil because you've been trained in the ways of God through constant use and familiarity with the scriptures. Let me go back to my, my illustration of an athlete for a minute. Um, when I drive the lane, okay, uh, when I drive the lane, I don't see, I don't see those things that Jordan sees. And the few that I do see, now that I'm 45 years old, um, when I drive in there, I will sometimes tell my, 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 my body what to do as I'm driving the lane, and my body's like, ain't doing that, um, ain't doing that. And I go in, and I, in my mind, it looks like some beautiful spin, you know, layup, and it turns out looking more like a wounded duck coming in for a crash landing. Why? Because, because my body is no longer trained in constant use through, and, and I'm old, which is beyond the scope of this illustration, but um, and no longer trained in constant use so that, that I'm able to respond with, with instinct in that moment because I have not been in constant use with those skills in basketball. What David is saying is you have got to be so familiar, you've got to be so dexterous with the scriptures that in the moment you just instinctively know what to do. And if you're looking for an action step on this one, it is that you get so saturated with scripture that when life cuts you, you bleed God's word. And it just becomes a second nature to you and it becomes an instinct to you. That's your action step. Because listen, you will never live out the will of God any more than you know the word of God. 
You cannot live out the will of God any more than you know the word of God. And if you're telling me I want to know the will of God, but you're not devoting yourself to the word of God, then you're kidding yourself. Because it is more of an instinct than it is an instruction. And God says, you become the kind of person who understands my ways, and you'll end up choosing what I want you to choose. So those who experience the guidance of God are those who are trained in the ways of God. Second characteristic, number two, those, he says, who are obedient to the commands of God. Those obedient to the commands of God, notice verse 9. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches them his way. Verse 10, all the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep his covenant and decrees. Humble, verse 9, humble means you believe God's way is best. The opposite of that is pride, right? Pride assumes that your way is better than God's way, right? Obedient means that you are obeying God in the areas where you do know what he has said. If you're taking notes, write this down. God's promise to give guidance in the areas Scripture doesn't address is extended to those who are obeying him in those areas the Scriptures do address. If you're the kind of person, and I imagine we have some here this weekend, who's praying for God's wisdom and some decision over here about a job or a relationship or a future plan, yet you got some area back here that you are living in defiance to what God has clearly said, you need to stop talking about this because God didn't want to talk about this until you have dealt with that. And this over here might be, um, might be uh, a relate. We have, we have couples that are sometimes praying about their future while they're living together, not married. I'm like, why are you talking to God about his direction over here when you're clearly disobeying him back here? God's like, I'm not going to tell you what, what scripture doesn't address until you're humble enough to obey what it does address. So stop asking for my help when you're living in defiance to what I've said. Um, we have people who are praying about God's wisdom for a job, yet they're not obeying God in the principles of generosity. And God's like, why are you talking to me about my provision in areas that I haven't addressed when you are disobeying me in this area that I have addressed? There is a, a humility that God leads that is demonstrated by obedience to God's commands. Um, give you a, a, a third illustration here. Um, there's an old book called the, you're like, what is this? I'll tell you in a minute. Um, it, it is uh, by George MacDonald, and he's a British writer, last couple, uh, 100, 150 years ago, um, called The Princess and the Goblin. Anybody read that, that book, Princess and the Goblin? Um, it's a kid's book, but it's kind of hard for a kid's book to read, so I wouldn't go grab it tonight necessarily. But um, it, So Princess and the Goblin, there is a, uh, a goblin kingdom that's trying to take over the human kingdom. And there's a princess, and she um, is sent away so that she can be protected uh, to the house of her fairy godmother. And her godmother uh, gives her, uh, says, listen, if the goblins come and attack you, she gives her a ring and a ball of yarn. And she says, this is a magical ball of yarn. You put the ring on and follow this yarn, and this yarn will guide you to safety. So whenever she's scared, if she hears something happening, she puts the ring on out from under her pillow and starts to follow the, and it usually takes her to her godmother who lives in the bedroom upstairs. Well, one night she hears the goblin coming in to get her, so she puts the ring on. But this time, this time the thread doesn't lead her upstairs to her grandmother's room, her godmother's room. Instead, it leads her out into the woods, which is really, really terrifying to her. But she keeps following it because she's like, surely my godmother is, 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 is trustworthy. So she keeps following. And then it takes her to the entrance of a cave a cave she recognizes as the entrance into the goblin kingdom. And then she, she begins to follow it even farther and it goes deeper into the cave and it comes to this gigantic like prison and it goes through a prison door and she's, I mean, she's freaking out. She's like, what am I doing? But when she gets into this prison door, she discovers a, another friend that the goblins have taken captive and she's able to set him free. But she grabs a hold of the, um, the, the thread and she keeps following it and it keeps going deeper down into the, to, to the dungeon, this cave. And, and her friend is like, what are we doing? And she's like, I have to keep following this thread. 
Now, I'm going to totally blow the story for you, but eventually it leads her to her godmother and they're able to destroy the goblin kingdom and they all live happily ever after. George MacDonald's point in the whole thing was when you're following God, there is a trust and following a thread that sometimes leads you to places that you don't understand and that you don't want to go. For example, you've been following the thread. You've been following the thread of what God wants and you always thought it would lead you to marriage. But it keeps leading you for some reason to singleness. And right now you're like, I don't want to follow that thread. I'd rather put it down and I'd rather go over here and I'd rather deal with this. And God says, you got to keep following that thread. That thread will lead you where I want you to go. But sometimes it's going to take you through places that you weren't expecting to go. And you got to trust me enough to keep going. Uh, Maybe you're in a business situation and you're tempted to compromise your integrity. Uh, Maybe you feel like I got to cheat to get ahead. Or maybe you know that, that if you tell the truth to your boss, it might cause you to lose your job or it might change your career. David actually addresses that one directly. It's verse 3. No one who waits for you will ever be disgraced. Those who act treacherously without cause will always be disgraced. In other words, you've got to keep following the thread, even when it means telling the truth and being honest is going to cost you, because that's the thread that keeps you in God's will, and that's where God has promised to bless and take care of you. Ultimately, you've got to decide who you trust with your future. Because waiting on God means doing things his way, even when it leads you into the woods and down into the cave and into the presence of the enemy itself, because you would rather be there trusting God than you would be to be out on your own. Give you one more here before I move on. Maybe you got somebody in your past to whom you refuse to extend forgiveness, even though that you should. I'm telling you, listen, that is keeping you from experiencing God's blessing and his fullness in the present. And I know it feels like it's taking you into a dark cave, but that is the place at which you will experience the provision and the goodness of God. I think here of um, uh, the Old Testament story, and I realize I'm giving you a lot of Old Testament stories, and if you're new to church, you're like, what are all these stories about? They're awesome. You should read the Bible. Um, There is um, uh, Naaman uh, in the Old Testament is a Syrian general who is Israel's enemy. And he has a little girl um, that he's taken captive, a Hebrew servant girl, which means that he had likely killed her parents and taken her captive. Well, Naaman gets leprosy. Now, you imagine if you're this little girl and this guy who is your master, your slave master has gotten leprosy, your response to him will be like, ha, serves you right, right? I knew this was going to come, but instead this girl goes to him and she says, oh, that my master would be able to find Elisha the prophet. He could heal you, which shows the most remarkable thing about this teenage girl, which is that somehow she had developed the capacity to forgive him. And she had forgiven him even when it felt like it was taking her direction. She didn't want to go. And through that forgiveness, not only was Elisha, I mean, not only was Naaman cleansed of his leprosy, ultimately it led to a great act of deliverance for the people of Israel itself. What it's showing you is that when you follow that thread, and that thread is leading to forgiveness, even though it feels like, I don't, I don't know if I can go there, when you go there, you will experience the goodness and the blessing of God because God's promise goes with his instructions to obey. So it's those that are trained in the ways of God, those who follow the thread of obedience to God, whatever the cost. Here's number three, those who are trusting in the promises of God. Those who are trusting in the promises of God. Number th- uh, verse three, no one who waits for you will be disgraced. Wait implies that sometimes you're in a place where you don't see it fulfilled yet. And that's a hard place to be. I've been there. And you're like, I don't see it working out. He's like, just wait. You got to trust me. Verse 14, one of my favorites. The secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him. Secret counsel implies that there's things that God will share with you and instruction he will give to you 
when you seek to be close to him. Tim Keller indicates, says this phrase indicates, these are those special moments of spirit guidance that the spirit of God will sometimes supernaturally give to you in a moment. Now, I don't have time to give you a full message on this. Um, I'm not trying to promo a book, but that's why I wrote the book, Jesus Continued, was to really try to explore a few of these things and show you how the New Testament reveals when the Spirit will give you special guidance. But here's just a a 30,000-foot flyover. Um, A a lot of times in the Bible, a lot of times in the New Testament, that special Spirit guidance comes from the church itself. In fact, that's the number one way, probably. Um, Acts 13, verse 2 is your example. The Holy Spirit said to the church, separate Barnabas and Paul for the work that I have for them. What's interesting is that when God had something for Barnabas and Paul, he didn't tell it to Barnabas and Paul, he told it to the church. Which means that in my life, I've had a lot of people in this church give me instructions that they're like, you know, I've been praying for you and I just felt like God put this on my heart. And it turns out it was a spirit given instruction about what I should do. I can tell you that if you cut yourself off from the fellowship of the church, you were cutting yourself off from the opportunity to be guided by the spirit. And I don't mean just coming and sitting and listening to me each week. I mean, you're involved in a small group. You're connected in relationships. That's the Spirit's means for speaking into your life. That's one way. Uh, Another way is sometimes to do it through circumstances. In the book of Acts, you see Paul saying, I thought I was supposed to go over here, but but the Spirit of God closed all these doors and showed me I was supposed to go this other way. Um, uh, uh, A third way is inner promptings that the Holy Spirit puts in your heart when you pray. Um, uh, uh, Nehemiah, another Old Testament guy is your example here. Nehemiah knows that God wants him to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. What's interesting is that you read the book of Nehemiah cover to cover in the Bible, and you will never one time find God telling Nehemiah that's what he wants him to do. All it says, Nehemiah 2.12, is is the Spirit of God put this on my heart. It gave me a burden. It gave me a burden that I knew had to be from him, a desire, a passion. Some of you will experience as you pray a passion for a particular ministry or for a career to see Jesus made known in this area here, and you will recognize that as a prompting of the Spirit of God. What he is promising in in Psalm 25 is whatever secret counsel you need, God will make it known to you, right? So you've got those who are trained in the ways of God. You've got those who are obeying the commands of God, those who are trusted in the promises of God. Some of you are like, okay, well, but what does that mean in the moment that I actually need to make a decision? I'm in this moment, I got to make a decision. What do all these things mean? Here's what they mean. It means that when you're in that moment, listen to this. You take advantage of everything that you have at your disposable, every, disposal, every, every bit of wisdom. You're, you're consulting the scriptures. You're listening to the, the, to the, to the church. You're, you're praying. You're, you're making good T-charts and thinking what the wise decision here. Watch, here's a catch. And when you've done all that, you just make the decision. The, whatever seems wisest to you, you make that decision and trust that God is guiding you in that decision just like he said he would. That's the, tr- that, that, that's the key right there. I, I love how Acts expresses this. It's talking about a decision some of the early Christians made, Acts 15. And here's how they said it. They said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I love kind of the, almost the flippancy of that. We, 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 we thought about it, we prayed about it. And then it seemed like this was good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And so we, that's the decision we made. And they're just trusting that the Spirit of God was guiding that. And if he wanted something different, he would have shown them. The burden is not on you to figure it out. God says, put that burden on me. I can guide you even when you're not a good listener. Right? Here's one of my favorite verses on this, and it's pretty close to a life verse to me. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't lean, don't lean what on what? Your own understanding or your own ability to figure out what God wants. Trust in God's ability to show you 
not in your ability to figure it out. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will, what's his part? Direct your paths. Verse six has two phrases in it. One is yours, one is God's. Yours is, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Obey what you know to obey. Seek the wisdom that is at your disposal. What's his promise? He will direct your paths. Which means that in any decision, after I've done everything God told me to do, I just make the decision and say, thank you, God, that it's not even on me to figure out how to get this right. I'm doing everything you told me to do. Now you promise to direct my paths, and I'm trusting in you to do what you said you would do. It's led me to develop something over the years I've referred to as the sheep prayer. The sheep prayer is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 put into my prayer for guidance. You say sheep prayer. Um, When God chose an analogy for you in the Bible, an animal, what animal did he choose? I've already given you the answer. Sheep, right? Your spirit animal is a sheep, okay? Uh, Not an otter or lion or any of that stuff. You're a sheep. Now, bad news and good news. Bad news. What do you want first? Bad news? Bad news. Sheep are idiots. Anybody that knows sheep knows sheep are like the dumbest animals. They're just basically walking feed bags. They, don't, they, 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 they can't defend themselves. They can't run. They have terribly bad eyesight. They can see about four feet ahead of them. Um, they, just, they, they step into streams and they drown. They turn over in the backs and they get cast and they, can't, they, they, they die. They're just helpless. And when God in heaven was looking down at you and said, I need, a, 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 I need a, a, an animal to represent them, I'm going to choose sheep. Right, that's the bad news, right, is that even the wisest of you, when it comes to guidance and figuring out, think you're an idiot, all right? So bad news. Good news, you have an awesome shepherd. And if sheep get to where sheep need to go, it's never because of their competence as sheep. It is always because of the competence and the compassion of their shepherd. Because even the wise sheep is still an idiot, okay? Now, here's how that comes out as a prayer. Lord, I got this decision. And I've done my dead level best, God, to figure out and listen to you in every possible way. And I've got all kinds of counsel and I've prayed about it. And God, this is what I think I'm going to do. And so God, I'm choosing this. But God, you said I was a sheep, which means I had no confidence in my ability to make this decision. But I do have confidence in your compassion and your competence as a shepherd to guide me. So if this is not the right decision, I'm trusting you to take your rod and your staff and get me where I need to go. And thank God, Proverbs 3, 5 says, it's not on you. You don't have to lean on your own understanding, but you can trust in the Lord and his willingness to guide you. That's an awesome place to be. And I'm telling you, it is stress-free. Listen, God gave up on your decision-making ability back at the Garden of Eden. And that's where God looked at you and said, okay, if they're going to get to where they need to go, it's not going to be because of their wisdom as sheep. It's going to be because of my willingness and my compassion and my competence to guide them. That is an awesome place to be in trusting God. And that's what Psalm 25 is promising you. The question is not how God guides you. You don't even have the capacity for that. The question is who God guides and that's what he's showing you. Is the one who is trained in the ways of God, those who are obedient to the commands of God, those trusting in the promises of God. That's what it means to in all your ways acknowledge him. And he promises he will direct your paths. I got one more um, analogy for you here. The last one. Y'all remember one of these things right here? You remember this? Some of your, your blood pressure is going up, just pulling this out right now. This is called a map. For those of you that are under the age of 30, this is what people used to use to figure out where to go. This led to more marital difficulty with our parents than any other thing that we've ever seen. Because all of us have images of driving, like, where's 158? I think it was back there. It was just, it was terrible. Because this is overwhelming, right? Remember how overwhelming this was, trying to figure out where the different roads were? Um, 
this is what most people are looking for when they ask God for his will. They want a map of where to go. Um, maps can be overwhelming. I was listening to, or I was reading a, a book by Elizabeth Elliot called A Slow and Certain Light. And she was a missionary down in Ecuador and uh, in the Amazon jungle. And she said that she ran across some American tourists in the middle of the jungle who asked her for um, uh, directions about how to go somewhere. And she was like, y'all, this is the jungle. There are no directions. I can't tell you, like, you know, there's no landmarks. It's just woods and stuff everywhere. And, and they said, well, just draw us a map and where we're confident we'll make it where we need to go. She said, I'm confident you won't. And, uh, and so they said, just give it to us. So she finally just drew him a map. She just handed it to him, said, I never saw him again. She said, as far as I'm concerned, they might still be somewhere in the jungle, still wandering out there. She says, in some places, you don't need a map, you need a guide. You need a guide who understands everything so well that they can guide you in places and, and the map would just overwhelm you. What Psalm 25 offers you is not a map, it offers you a guide. And it says, this God will walk with you and if you trust in him and you obey him, he will control things and he will arrange decisions. He won't let other people, he won't let you mess it up if you commit yourself to him as your shepherd and you trust in his ability to guide you. Let me close with one last thing here, one last characteristic that may be, may be the most important of all of them. Uh, it's just a beautiful one. It's number four, his last characteristic. Those who are depending on the grace of God. Right? So we've got those that are trained in the ways of God, those obedient to the commands of God, those trusting the promises of God. Now we've got those depending on the grace of God. Several times throughout the psalm, David is going to talk about God's rescue of him. He's going to talk about God's deliverance and his forgiveness. And then he kind of comes to a climax in verse 10. That verse I showed you, all the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth. If you've got your Hebrew Bible open, you'll notice that word faithful love is the word hesed. Hesed, it means covenant love, unconditional love. I know that everything that God is doing in my life now is based on unconditional love. You see, listen, what haunts many of us in our pursuit of God's will is this suspicion that God still has mixed feelings toward us. Is that maybe, maybe he's still holding some grudges against us because of sins we've committed or mistakes we've made in the past, or maybe he's just disappointed with us. And so when you're, when you're, when you're looking to God, you're like, well, he's probably, he didn't, want, he didn't want life to be all blessing for me because I deserve some bad things too, and you know that. So here's what that looks like. It means that in any blessing that you go through, in any good chapter of your life, you're always waiting on the other shoe to drop, right? Because you, you almost see God in heaven going, well, you can't expect life to be that good. Are you serious? You don't deserve that. And so you got this good thing. I'm gonna have to pay you back with a little bad thing over here and I'll get even with you. Friends, what King David would tell us and what the good news of the gospel is, is that how God guides you from this point on and what God gives to you is no longer based on the worthiness of how you've lived. It's based on the worthiness of how Jesus lived. That's chesed. That's covenant love. Is that Jesus took the punishment so that you could get the blessing. So Paul David could say, all the Lord's ways, all of them, show faithful love and truth. Because all the wrath was poured out on Jesus in my place. The New Testament way of saying this, Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that all that God had against me, all the reason he would have to condemn, all the bad things, they got poured out on Jesus. That means I don't need to wait for the other shoe to drop and a blessing because the other shoe dropped on Jesus. And it dropped on him so that all that remains for me is blessing and goodness, which is why I so love that verse I gave you at the beginning and told you to pray for me. Proverbs 10, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. 
because he poured out all the sorrow on Jesus, the man of sorrows, so that what would remain for me is nothing but joy and happiness, so that I could say that all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus, that he has blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I could know that in everything that I'm doing, that I'm walking in his blessing, that every good and perfect gift is coming from above, from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning, which means there is no mixed feelings in him. There's no second thoughts. It's all, pro- all goodness, all blessing, all day long. Or to quote David one final time, that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because all the condemnation and all the evil was poured out on Jesus so that I could walk in the assurance of his constant intention to bless me every second of every day for the rest of my eternity. That's a great place to be. Why don't you bow your heads? Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes at all of our campuses? This is the kind of person God guides. Are you the kind of person that God guides? I'll walk you through them backwards. Are you depending on the grace of God? Have you ever received God's offer of covenant love? It's a gift given to you in Jesus. It's free to all who will receive it. God poured out the wrath for your sin on Jesus and said if you would receive him as your savior, he would restore you as his son or daughter. And there would be no condemnation left for you. If you've never received that, then receive it right now. And if you have received it, rest in it, rejoice in it. Are you trusting in the promises of God? Are you trusting in the promises that He's working all things together for good? All things. Are you obedient to the commands of God? Is there any area of your life, generosity, morality, some choice that you haven't fully surrendered yourself to God? Right now, the Holy Spirit's bringing it to mind, right now. And He's saying, surrender, trust me. Follow this thread of obedience. You say, yes, Lord, I'm ready to follow. I trust you. Those trained in the ways of God, have you devoted yourself to knowing the Bible? That could look like regular church attendance, obviously. It could also look like come into a small group, reading your Bible every day, doing a quiet time every day. Those are ways that you can become trained in the ways of God. It's why we're doing Kids Week this week, because we want to see our kids trained in the ways of God so that they'll grow up and instinctively know what he wants when they're in high school and college. Father, I pray that you would make this church into the kind of people, make me into the kind of pastor and husband and father and friend who experiences your guidance because I'm the kind of person that you guide. Thank you for these promises in Psalm 25. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.